0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Hello, this is Edwin Benson. I have a brief announcement to make before we begin this episode of the Return to Order Moment. We will be suspending the podcast. Uh, This will be the last episode for some time. It has been my pleasure and my honor to bring this podcast to you since we recorded our first episode in January of 2019. So, for five years, I have had the privilege of coming to you every week to bring you yet another episode in the Returned Water moment. However, our listenership has gone down significantly. The best years of the podcast were 2000 and 2021 during the COVID epidemic. And at that point, The podcast was doing a couple thousand listens a week, and now we're down to about 500. And the decision has been made that the resources of Return to Order and of the American TFP would be better used in other ways, in terms of writing articles and other means of raising our listeners' knowledge of the situation in the world and relating it to the phenomenon that Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira called the revolution. So I will still be around. I will be writing. My articles will continue to be seen on ReturnToOrder.org and tfp.org. And I invite and encourage you to read those articles and comment on them. And I do thank those of you who have been listening regularly for some time for your patronage of the Return to Order moment. And now it is time for us to go to our regular episode.
1: Now there is proof that children in traditional schools learn more. Welcome to the Turn Order Moment. During the 60s, so-called experts promoted something called new math. This spirit transformed America's classrooms. Other disciplines soon followed. English became language arts. History and government were combined into social studies. The library morphed into the media center. Signs kept the same name, but instruction radically changed. Computer screens are now the sign of modern education. Some subjects were eliminated. Handwriting instruction, home economics, driver's education, and most business courses are things of the past. All these changes were supposed to get our children ready for life in the 21st century. There is increasing evidence that the new ideas were just plain wrong. That is the topic of today's episode of the Return to Order Moment. Our first essay today concerns the use of computers in the classroom. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses the fact that important new research indicates that students learn more from books than from computer screens.
0: A recent study from Columbia University's Teachers College reveals something that many traditional-minded people already felt in their bones. Reading from a page is more profitable than from a computer screen. I am one such person. Two rooms in my home are primarily devoted to storing books. I could probably be described as a book hoarder. So I can easily understand the tactile delights of holding a book. I enjoy rereading books and seeing the notes and highlights that I made years ago. The sheer joy of leather bindings and high-quality creamy paper is one of life's great pleasures. Nonetheless, I also read from electronic media. I use an e-reader on sleepless nights because I don't need to turn on a lamp. It is also useful when traveling, since many books can be on an easily carried device. Its dictionary function is handy, as well as the marker that instantly brings me to the last page I read. I listen to recorded books that I lack the time to read. These enliven both the daily commute and long trips. I am amazed at the number of long out of print books that are available for free through the Internet Archive. Nonetheless, like many readers, my first choice is always to purchase hardcover books and read them in the usual way. However, this begs the question Is this preference based on reality or nostalgia? Do we prefer reading real books because that is how we did it in the past? Or is there some inherent superiority to pages over screens? The Columbia researchers tried to answer this question. They connected a high-density electroencephalogram, EEG, to measure brain activity in 59 middle school volunteers. They then had the students read from both pages and screens. Then, each student completed a variety of tests measuring reading comprehension. As good scientists, the researchers declined to make absolute statements based on such small numbers. As they note, this is the first study that attempted to relate brain activity to reading from printed pages and screens. Observations of 59 students should not dictate the future of teaching. However, the study did note that, quote, we were able to observe in our participant sample an advantage for the depth of processing when reading from print, unquote. In other words, the students learned more from pages than from screens. That being said, quote, The observation of a potential print advantage does not negate the value of rapid access to information that could be supported by digital reading. It may be that classroom practices should strategically match reading strategies and mediums to task, such as printed media are employed when deeper processing is required, while digital access to text is utilized for other needs. Their advice to the schools is simple. We should not yet throw away printed books. Yet disquieting evidence indicates some schools are doing exactly that. Much of the school system's reasoning is economic. Once purchased, a computer can hold many textbooks and other materials. Electronic books are considerably cheaper to buy than printed copies. They can be easily replaced when new editions are available. The time-consuming processes of issuing and collecting books are eliminated. Wear and tear and storage issues also evaporate. From the student's perspectives, electronic books offer some advantages. Taking home a device loaded with multiple textbooks is considerably easier than carrying several heavy books. Often, students can complete the homework related to the reading material and send it to the teacher using the same device, eliminating time worn excuses like, the dog ate my homework. The device can also record the time that individual students spent reading and the last page that they read. Such information is beneficial to teachers when evaluating student work and trying to determine which students are having trouble keeping up, as opposed to which are simply being lazy. However, these advantages count for little if the students learn less from screens than from pages. Acquiring knowledge is, after all, one reason that schools exist. Educators should encourage practices that expand the mind and eliminate anything that hinders learning. Yet many schools place economic and other motivations above the evidence that books are important in and of themselves. I recently received a telling insight about the shortage of reading materials in many schools. An acquaintance of mine worked as a substitute teacher in a reasonably large high school with an enrollment of around 1,800 students. One class period, she found herself in the school library. She was shocked at what she saw in the library's U.S. and World History sections. Both sections occupied only four small shelves. The U.S. History section contained only 103 books. The World History section was slightly larger, 116 books. The two sections together had one history book for every eight students in the school. The literature section, she added, was not much larger. This facility is not an impoverished inner-city high school, nor is it educated on the edge of nowhere. Its student-teacher ratio is 16 to 1, and its graduation rate is a respectable 94%. Its students score in the top 20% nationwide in both reading and math. Yet, like too many high schools, its library functions more as a computer lab than as a citadel of learning. Public and school libraries serve as portals for intelligent students and adults. Scanning their shelves excites a desire to know the information inside those covers. Who can say how many millions of people discovered new interests and added new facets to already existing fascinations within the welcoming walls of a library. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, it is easy to understand some motivations of the school officials who see little reason to spend money on libraries. While accurate data is not immediately available, student use of libraries is likely down considerably from the time before the Internet. There are never enough dollars, Why pour them into facilities that few people use? The answer is that the jury is still out. More study needs to be done about the relative advantages of pages and screens. In the meantime, the Columbia study is correct in advising schools not to be too hasty in disposing of the printed page.
1: In addition to teaching the young, schools, especially rural schools, focus, and unify communities. In such places, the school's team mascot often takes on great importance. Historically, many of those mascots depicted American Indian figures. They promote toughness, resilience, and a fighting spirit. The left hates such symbols. First, they despise traditional forms of manliness. However, their overheated imaginations see another harm. They argued that the use of these mascots mocks and demeans Native American Indians. Promoting a Form of Racism Over the last couple decades, the leftists have promoted this idea. They swoop into the community and do their best to replace the mascots. Often, they are successful. No one wants to be called a racist. However, some communities resist. Mr. Benson describes such a situation in his essay... Inspired by their warrior mascot, a Pennsylvania school board turns back a leftist invasion.
0: America's woke activists specialize in making national issues out of local concerns. They like to use the national news media and the federal courts to push their agenda ahead. Often, such strategies work well. However, the added publicity can backfire and broadcast the left's failures. One such failure occurred in a rural area just south of York, Pennsylvania. A local school's American Indian symbols became the focus of woke controversy as activists insisted upon removing them. However, the controversy took another direction when two national organizations of Native American Indians took opposing sides. Susquehannock High School is located near the borough of Glen Rock, Pennsylvania. The school drew its name from the Indian tribe that inhabited the area. The nearby Susquehanna River draws its name from the same source. The Susquehannocks disbanded about 1678, following a military defeat by the Iroquois Confederacy. Scattered bands headed into western Pennsylvania and Ohio, where some joined the Shawnees. Others went north to New York and joined the Seneca and Onondaga, Modern Descendants Live Among the Iroquois and Lenape. When the Southern York School District opened a high school in the early 50s, it took the name of the area's ancient inhabitants. The high school extended the metaphor by calling its team the Warriors. Naturally, the logo for the school also reflected American Indian heritage. That insignia went through several versions, but most recently, The bust of a warrior with two feathers was placed against a keystone, the Pennsylvania state symbol. Behind the warrior were a stone tomahawk and a peace pipe. The overall effect of the logo is to inspire students to emulate the courage and determination of the Susquehannocks. In no way could it be described as comic, cute, or demeaning. Indeed, the local community acknowledged the area's Native American Indian heritage in a very public and genuine way. A respectful symbol such as Sasquahinox was presented in various contexts, from official stationery to band uniforms and athletic contests. It is difficult to see what the forces of wokeness had against the Southern New York School District. However, the National Congress of American Indians NCAI, makes it a point to enter these controversies. Its webpage boasts that, quote, The NCAI is the oldest, largest, and most representative American Indian and Alaska Native organization, serving the broad interests of tribal governments and communities. Its Policy Research Council follows the well-worn, woke pattern. It, quote, is actively engaged through national and international advocacy efforts, educational campaigns and events, and programmatic initiatives. Unquote. One leftist hand washes the other. In September 2023, Fox News reported that, quote, The NCAI shows that it receives support from seven different taxpayer funded bureaucracies. Unquote. Perhaps even more significant is that the NCAI, also lists among its supporters the George Soros Open Society Foundations, a grant-making network which, according to its critics, promotes woke ideology, racial division, and a simplistic binary narrative of American history, NCAI is also the self-appointed arbiter of Native American Indian images. The organization made a name for itself by successfully protesting such symbols used by the Washington Redskins football team and Cleveland Indians baseball club. As with most leftist organizations, the NCAI is absolutist. As it stated in a 2015 letter to the very liberal Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, quote, The continued use of racist and derogatory Indian sports mascots, logos, and symbols have perpetuated negative stereotypes of America's First Peoples. Rather than honoring Native peoples, these caricatures and stereotypes contribute to a disregard for the diverse cultural heritage of Native peoples. There is no room for rational argument, nor do they attempt to distinguish between respectful and disrespectful logos. Such use of Native American images is harmful, period. The NCAI entered the Sesquahannock School situation in 2021. At that time, leftists on the school board considered replacing the old logo. Then-school board member Deborah Kalina placed it in the context of the chaotic COVID and Antifa summer of 2020 in an op-ed for the York Daily Record, a local newspaper. Quote, A student letter to the board in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in May 2020 asked the district to consider retiring the stereotypical Indian warrior image. The board hosted a public meeting with leaders from Native American communities, among them the National Congress of American Indians. There is compelling academic research that shows that Native mascots generate negative psychological effects for Native students, Native mascots are also associated with negative stereotypes and a tendency to discriminate against Native Americans, unquote. Great consternation followed, with both sides mounting petition drives. According to an Associated Press report, one petition against removing the mascot garnered 3,800 signatures. That is a huge number, considering that the high school student body is only 758. Nonetheless the board decided by a 7 to 2 vote to drop the logos while retaining the name Warriors in April 2021 That decision was one that some board members might regret as in many American communities the people of Southern York County used their ballots to replace leftists with citizens who respect the importance of tradition five new members took their places in January 2024 And moved immediately to reverse the previous board's decision. This was not, however, a mindless knee jerk reaction. Some of the new members did a bit of homework before introducing their motion. The Native American Guardians Association, NAGA, opposes the NCAI's position. One of its slogans is Educate, not eradicate. Where NCAI detects ridicule, n a g a sees respect. Quote, it is understandable that all past and present nations and civilizations of the world celebrated their early history. America is no different n A g a points out that these images promote pride, honor, and respect. Quote, the qualities of tenacity and perseverance were sought by individual public schools, colleges, and universities to associate with not just the schools, but the community as a whole. These basic honorable traits and values were instilled in alumni as they ventured into the world around them. Just as the leftist members rested upon the rhetoric of NCAI, the new members invited NAGA to provide an hour-long presentation to the board. By the time the marathon-length meeting ended after midnight... The board voted 7-2 to to reverse the previous decision. They properly assigned the task of creating the new Indian head logo to the students in the school's graphic arts classes. On one level, this might look like a minor issue. It is not. Such symbols are significant. They play a role in celebrating a community's culture and transmitting its values to the next generation. Even more crucial... It is part of an organic process by which authentic societies regenerate themselves. Perhaps without understanding its full importance, the Sesquahannock community took a vital step in the right direction by rejecting this leftist cultural onslaught.
1: As mentioned earlier, many schools have removed handwriting from the curriculum. New evidence says this was a mistake. It argues that handwriting is an important part of learning. Mr. Benson discusses that evidence in his essay, Even If Schools Deny It, Children and Adults Need to Learn to Write in Cursive. In
0: too many schools, teaching handwriting, especially cursive, is extinct. Over the last half century, America's public, private, religious, and charter schools became obsessed with so called critical thinking. As that obsession grew, mechanical processes were discarded. Emphasizing grammar, the doctrine taught, inhibited children from expressing their thoughts. Teaching historical facts repressed students' creative opinions about past events. Memorizing mathematical formulas hindered students' ability to solve problems independently. Phonics obstructed verbal creativity and restricted linguistic, ethnic, and regional diversity handwriting was only one more casualty of these waves of critical enthusiasm. As these theories gained popularity, all students' learning abilities spiraled ever lower. According to a recent Wall Street Journal article, one of those skills, cursive handwriting, is returning. Quote, "...about half the states now have a law or state standard requiring cursive instruction." many of them passed in recent years, unquote. For those millions who were never taught to use the cursive alphabet, a brief description of this art of beautiful writing may be in order. Merriam-Webster defines cursive as a form of writing in which the letters flow with the strokes of successive characters joined and the angles rounded. It is usually contrasted with block printing, in which each character is separated and the lines are more often straight. In the past, block printing predominated in the primary grades, given that young children still need to develop the fine motor skills to produce cursive writing. Then, sometime in the second or third grade, teachers began to train their students to use cursive. The key was practice. Students might use a whole line on a sheet of paper to copy lowercase letters like those that the teacher made on the chalkboard. Originality was undesirable. The goal was to replicate the model. This training aspect was appalling to the so-called modern educators in the mold of John Dewey. It opposed the presumably democratic ideals Dr. Dewey thought education should embody. Handwriting instruction was mechanical, rote, repetitive, and, to the modern frame of thought, soul-destroying. At best, it was a necessary evil. Teachers responded in the way that most people react to unfortunate necessities by spending as little time as possible on them. So, over decades, schools gradually abandoned the ability to write beautifully. Many argued that the computer keyboard would be the death knell of cursive. After all, if the world communicates by connecting one machine to another, then handwriting is unnecessary. It is a superfluous, outmoded skill important only to the eccentric and nostalgic. Penmanship was sacrificed for the necessities defined by Common Core and STEM curricula. However, education itself is in a freefall. The modernists want to blame the condition on structural racism and the necessity of closing schools caused by the COVID pandemic. So called structural racism is only an attempt to cover up the fact that many liberal programs haven't achieved their lofty goals. Unable to admit that their progressive impulses are horribly mistaken, the left clings to the idea that the real culprit is some lingering sense of oppression that cannot be defined or eliminated. On the other hand, closing the schools for up to two years was authentically disastrous. The distance education experiment failed miserably, proving that computers could never replace teachers. It also revealed leftist messages, previously communicated in the relative privacy of the classroom, to concerned parents. In COVID's wake, new scrutiny was given to many basic ideas behind liberal education. Some previously discarded practices are being reconsidered. Among them is handwriting instruction. During the depth of the COVID experience, a little-known organization called the American Handwriting Analysis Foundation released a white paper titled Why Handwriting Remains Essential in 2021 and the Future. It is worth close examination, since it spells out many reasons why teaching handwriting is, and will remain, important. The first set of reasons connects handwriting to other academic goals. For instance, quote, Research shows that those who take notes by hand outperform those who type notes on a laptop or Apple iPad or tap them into a smartphone. Unquote. Forming letters on paper engages the mind far more than tapping them out on a device, thereby facilitating the learning process. This idea is especially true for young children. A 2019 report by the George Lucas Educational Foundation posits that there is, quote, a strong connection between the hand and the natural circuitry of the brain. As students learn to better write the critical features of letters, they also learn to recognize them more fluently. Unquote. The advantages of the pen over the keyboard continue into high school and college. One easily understandable benefit is that a blank notebook presents far fewer distractions than a computer. Therefore, the mind remains more focused on the material at hand. There is far less temptation to covertly open another window to surf the internet or send text messages to friends. Ironically, those who have mastered cursive handwriting are also better equipped to use electronic devices. In a 2014 article in the Early Childhood Education Journal, researchers Nancy C. Stevenson and Carol Just of Thomas Jefferson University determined that the, quote, stages of motor learning for handwriting and keyboarding are similar yet occur at different times, Stevenson's and Just's research indicates that the facility for handwriting begins at age 5 and continues past age 7. Keyboarding skills, however, are best learned between ages 10 and 12. Students who develop the skills and muscle memory needed to produce legible handwriting are better equipped to learn to use keyboards proficiently. Such skills will assist those students throughout their academic and professional careers. There is one more advantage to students, more challenging to quantify but essential nonetheless. In addition to being an effective means of communication, cursive handwriting is also an art form. As young children practice making the letters and hone the fine motor skills mentioned above, they gain a sense of achievement. They do not need to wait until the teacher tells them they are improving. The evidence is right in front of them. They can see the improvement. They can feel the increased flexibility of their arms and hands as they build the muscles that control their pens. Before long, they can add their own artistic flair to their handwriting. They participate in acts of creating beauty. Given all the advantages the craft of handwriting should resume its former role in American schools. Unfortunately, the teachers are ill-equipped to teach penmanship because their schools never taught them those skills as students. Except in very traditional schools, handwriting has been out of vogue since the late 60s. Only the very oldest teachers in today's schools were trained in those skills. This fact necessitates a professional development program for teachers before students can benefit. Such programs are expensive and time-consuming. Not only are many of the teachers unable to write in cursive, but much of their professional training prejudices them against it. Those attitudes further hinder the process. They are so invested in the ideology of John Dewey and his disciples that they stand in the way of teaching children necessary skills, penmanship, among many others. Thus, bringing teachers on board the cursive train mandated by state laws will take some time. However, there are many resources to assist parents in filling these gaps in the meantime many books on penmanship are available. Some are new. Others are reprints of manuals from the late 19th century. Both parents and children have much to gain by developing this essential skill.
1: This concludes Now that there is proof that children in traditional schools learn more. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2024 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.